Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. This happens to be, I believe, show number 13. And today we're going to be talking about finance instruments. And uh, one thing I do want to mention to you is here very quickly, if you check your uh, exam schedule, remember under Blackboard, uh, there is a link there for the exam schedule. I've mentioned this many, many times. I'm also uh, probably will continue to always get emails about when the exam happens to be, but go to Blackboard and it will, under exam schedule, uh, you'll find the exam, the date, the time, the place for the uh, first midterm exam. Today, anyway, we're going to move on to, oh, one more thing with that, please remember, if you see this before the exam, to make sure you bring a number two pencil with you and you bring a Scantron 882. Uh, anyway, moving on, today we're going to be talking about something called financial or finance instruments, finance instruments. So what we're really talking about things, we call, to call them finance instruments, but we're really talking about that kind of documents that's, that clients, you and clients will see as you proceed through either the financing of a home purchase or any kind of a purchase of real estate or possibly the refinance of an existing property that you may own. So we're going to be talking about those particular financial instruments. We're going to spend quite a bit of time doing that. And the reason why it becomes very important that we do is because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what these these instruments really include or cover, where certain clauses are located, and just being able to have you so that you're more informed about what they do so that when you sit down with your clients, you can explain this information to them better. So what I'm going to be doing now is I'm going to be moving as, as usual back and forth between my old friendly document camera and the plasma screen. I will be either today or the next time as usual pulling up some things on the Internet. Uh, specifically, one of the things I'm going to be pulling up on the Internet is the uh, California Veterans uh, Home Loan Program website to show you something because there's a uh, topic in this chapter called a land contract, and I want to show you where that specifically is used if you're dealing with CalVet home loans. So anyway, I'm going to move over here, and uh, what we want to do today is, again, we're talking about finance instruments. Just to give you a rough idea, I'm just pulling up the, uh, the uh, outline for the chapter, just to point out that these are the topics we're going to be talking about. We will be talking about promissory notes and what kinds of details are going to be in promissory notes and what kinds of clauses will be in there. We will be talking about something that we use a lot in California as a security instrument for, uh, for when we purchase property, and that's called a deed of trust or sometimes called the trust deed. So we'll be talking about the, that part. We are going to go back and talk about something called mortgages, and the reason why is we're going to be trying to helpfully distinguish the difference between what a mortgage is versus what a deed of trust is and also to explain what the advantages and the disadvantages of both different types of instruments happen to be and why, finally, why we use, in California at least, predominantly all deeds of trust. Then we're going to talk about this uh, thing called real estate uh, contracts, and, and specifically you hear these referred to a lot as things such as land contracts or contracts for a purchase. But we're going to be talking about that, and I'm going to show you where we actually do use those on a regular basis, and, and the organization that uses this is somebody called CalVet. So I'll be showing you underneath their page uh, 
at their website they have a list of frequently asked questions so I'm going to show you where it specifically calls that out and explains that to the veteran so you you're aware of something that you may actually end up being involved in then finally we're going to talk about different types of clauses that you would see in the security instruments and the security instrument means the deed of trust okay or in the case of the mortgage and we're going to be talking about something called an acceleration clause a prepayment clause a subordination clause and a partial release clause so you know what each one of these are and when you do use them so anyway the first thing that I want to do and you're going to start to notice that I probably you know as I read the book myself I spend an awful lot of time underlining stuff or highlighting things because I think that they're important sometimes I uh, feel as if I underline and highlight so many things that maybe what I ought to do is just go out and get a bucket of paint and a roller and do it and put it on the book because there's just so much important information in these chapters. And the reason why I stress that why it's important is because there are a lot of people out there today that are signing a lot of documents to buy houses, to buy cars, to buy a lot of things, and they are not realizing what they are signing. And I think a lot of the people that are there to explain these documents to them don't understand them either. And so it's kind of like the blind leading the blind. So I think it's important that if you want to be one of the top-notch real estate professionals, whether it's in the lending industry or it's in, or just in the real estate business, you really do want to take the time to read these uh, documents, go over them, make sure you understand them, and have the time that you can go back to somebody that may know more about it than you do, such as an escrow officer or a lender, and explain these details so you can therefore explain them better to your client so they can make a more informed decision about what this really means. So anyway, the first thing we're going to talk about is a promissory note. And a promissory note, I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time reading what's on that page and then explaining in detail what that happens to be. So anyway, start out with promissory notes. They happen to be something that's in writing, uh, in writing in, that's written. Uh, and what it is is essentially it's a promise to pay. In other words, you've borrowed some money and you're promising in writing that you are going to repay this person, individual, lending institution, somebody. So you're putting that in writing. The one promising to pay the money is called the maker. So in other words, it's like you're making the note. Okay, You're creating the note, if you will, if you want to look at it that way. But it's the, they're called the maker. So when you borrow the money, you're the maker of the note. Usually the maker is the home buyer, or it could be somebody that's borrowing the money, whatever, but you're the one that's obligated to pay it back. The one promised payment is called the payee, so that would be the lender. That could be an individual, could be a company, corporation, Bank of America, could be anybody, Wells Fargo, whoever it happens to be. Usually the payee is either a lender if the purchaser has borrowed money from a bank or other lender to buy the property or, the, or a seller. So a seller if you have where maybe you're going to buy the property and the seller decides that they will either assist you with the financing of the property by carrying maybe their equity in the form of a second loan, or in some cases people may say, you know what, hey, this is not a bad investment for me. My property is pretty well free and clear. If I sell the property, I can charge a pretty good rate of interest, much higher than I would get at the bank. And you know what, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'll be the lender in this case. So it could be a homeowner that's doing that. If the seller is financing the transaction whole or part by taking back a promissory note or a mortgage or deed of trust. So that's what we're talking about there. 
Now, in a promissory note, there are certain things that have to be there in order for it to work. First of all, promissory notes are usually brief. They're simple documents. They normally are less than a page long and state the following things. These are the things that you have to have in the note for it to be viable. Number one, you have to have the names of the parties. So in other words, who is it that's borrowing the money? And keep in mind that, remember, that could be a husband and wife, or it could be a brother and uh, two brothers, or it could be partners, it could be anybody. But whoever's borrowing the money needs to be clearly stated who that happens to be. Second of all, the amount of the debt. How much are you borrowing? Okay, is it, you know, 100000 200000 300000 So how much money is being borrowed? Number three, how and when will the money be paid? Is the money going to be paid back on a monthly basis? Is it going to be paid back quarterly, semi-annually, annually? You know, when is it going to be paid and how, is it, how are you going to pay it? Uh, the reason why I use the term how is it going to be paid is because you may, for example, uh, have uh, maybe not necessarily contained in a note, but a lot of lenders nowadays, I know Bank of America happens to be one of them, if you set up something that automatically pays your loan through your checking account, they sometimes will give you a discount on the interest rate. So they may, for example, say to you, uh, you know what, if you borrow the money normally from us, your interest rate is 6.5, but if you turn around and have it automatically come out of your checking account and go to our bank, We'll pay it. We'll reduce that by say a quarter of a percent. So it'll be six and a quarter instead of six and a half. So that might be something that's going to be included. Next thing is whether there is an acceleration clause, which we're going to discuss. Remember when we've talked about acceleration clauses before, it means that we are going to make the person that's borrowing the money pay it off sooner. Okay, it's like stepping on the gas in your car. You know, when we step on the gas pedal, we call that an accelerator, okay, speeding things up. So an acceleration clause would be what are those conditions that may happen in the future that may cause the lender to say, I want you to pay this loan completely back to me right now, okay? So we'll talk about some of those things later on, what those acceleration clauses would be. Uh, the payee's remedies, if the property, if the money is not properly paid back, paid back. So, in other words, what can the lender do to you if you do not pay the loan back, such as sell the property? Uh, we'll talk about the when we talk about deeds of trust and mortgages. For example, maybe the seller under a deed of trust and you're using it to buy it, at least in California, they can go back and if they have to foreclose on the property because you don't make payments, then basically what they do is they put it up for sale, whatever's sold, whatever money they get, that satisfies your loan. But if under a mortgage, which is under a judicial type of foreclosure, then the lender can, if they can't get enough money when they sell the property, they can actually go back to you personally and, and, and go back to you and get a judgment against you where you'll have to pay the di difference between the, def or what we call a defici deficiency between how much you owe and how much they were able to sell the property for. So we'll talk about that. So they'll talk about those remedies in there and what they can do to you, okay? Prepayment penalty, uh, not prepayment, but uh, fees, excess fees, uh, late fees, things along that line we're talking about, okay? And finally, the signature of the maker. In other words, your signature that you're the one that signed this. Now, remember, I've, I've, I, I believe I've mentioned this before. This document is between you and the lender. 
It is not recorded. It is not public information. It is not recorded at the county recorder's office. It's just totally private information between you and the lender, okay? In addition to that, it says other provisions of the financing agreement between the debtor, the maker, or the buyer, and the creditor, pay, payee, or lender are found in the mortgage or the deed of trust. So what this basically means, and when we get to the deed of trust, you're going to find out that the note is fairly short. But when you actually take a look at the deed of trust, and the deed of trust that's used in this particular book doesn't really go into all the details. It looks very simple, but there's actually a lot more to it. And um, the deed of trust may cover such things as, you know what, you have to carry fire insurance. If you don't carry fire insurance, we can foreclose on you. Uh, you have to keep the property in good condition. If you don't keep it in good condition, we can foreclose on you. You can't sell the property without our permission. Those are all things that can be recorded in that deed of trust. Okay? Anyway, going down from there, they talk about uh, just the last thing they talk about. Negotiable uh, instruments are promissory notes that are freely transferable. Freely means that the bank or the creditor can sell the note and obtain immediate cash. I think they threw this in in this point in time to let you know that when that note is created. Like, for example, if I am the seller of the property and I take this note back on the equity of my property and I decide that maybe I'm getting payments for a couple years <clears throat> and then for whatever reason, maybe I'm getting ready to retire and I say, you know, I want to get a brand new motorhome and I need some cash, I can sell that note or transfer that note from myself to somebody else. Okay? And that typically what they'll do is when they buy that note, they'll buy it at a discount. So, for example, the first note that I maybe took back was for $100,000. If I want immediate cash for it, I typically would turn around and sell it to somebody like an investor, and that person that would buy it would probably buy it at a discount. In other words, not give me the 100000 what's owed on it. They would probably maybe give me 90000 okay, or maybe 85000 for it. Okay, so it's just to let you know that that is transferable. Okay, they do give you on this page here, and I don't think that you can see this really well on the TV, but they do give you a note in the book, a fairly simple, straightforward note. I'm going to point out a where these clauses are in here. I'm going to be zooming this thing up so that we can see some of the text, uh, which is kind of nice. And uh, so what I'm going to do is just kind of blow the note up here a little bit so we can see this. This is the part here where the borrower promises to pay, you know, where they're promising to pay the amount of money, the principal and interest, which is called out here. This part right here is where the interest is actually stated on a yearly rate. Okay, so that's part of the note. You have to tell the people, you know, what is it? What is the interest rate going to be? Uh, you have to discuss where the payments are going to be, the time and the place of the payments. So that's all described right here. Okay. Next thing is, is it talks about the borrower's right to repay the loan, that they can repay it. Okay. All the principal or you know principal and interest. This talks about loan charges. Okay. This this part right here in the note. Then this part right here talks about the borrower's failure to pay as required. What happens in the event that they don't pay in time? So it discusses those things, such as, uh, 
you know, that they can charge fees, um, that they can, if you don't pay on time, that they can call the note all due and payable, that you have to pay the note off if you're late, okay? And um, it goes on from there. I wish I could blow this up a little bit bigger because there's a lot of detail in there. Go on from here. This is a clause that I thought was very, very important that I think um, what I'm going to pull it back out again, and then I'm going to try to attempt to read it here. Um, This is one thing that I think, it says obligations of persons under this note. And basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to, kind of read this because what and I know you can't see it necessarily on the TV but what I really want to say is what this part of the note is really doing is telling you that in the event that let's say for example you and a friend of yours get a loan on a piece of property you decide to borrow the money to buy a house and your friend decides to leave town okay leave the town, leave country, do something, he's gone or she's gone, you are still financially obligated to pay that loan. Okay, That's very, very important. So that means that if you are having something like a divorce or an, you know, a divorce with a couple or an argument with a friend or you have somebody that you thought was going to be a good partner and now they've turned out to be a flake and they leave out, they just say, I'm not, hey, I'm, I don't want to deal with this anymore, I'm gone. You are still financially obligated to make that payment. Now, what's serious about that is when you originally got the loan, maybe you were looking at both incomes in order to make the payment. Now you're stuck with the one, being the one that has to make the payments. You need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of what you're really signing up for because it can have a detrimental effect on your credit if you're ending up that you're having to take over because your friend has left town, for example. And I've seen that happen a number of times. Okay, so I just wanted you, again, to go ahead and get through and make sure that you read all the different parts of this note so that you can sit there and be able to explain it to your client. One thing I do want to mention on these notes, this note happens to be a fairly simple, straightforward note. You <clears throat> excuse me. You are probably going to find different types of notes. Uh, in other words, notes that, for example, might and deal with something like a graduated payment mortgage, which would be different, where the amount that you owe is going to start at one level and continue to increase. You could also have another kind that maybe is talking about the fact that you're going to borrow the money and it has an adjustable rate mortgage where maybe there's an initial amount of interest that you're going to be paying and then later on it's going to go up. Okay, You could have... Uh, different types of notes. You can find out you can have things like an equity line of credit where it'll have a certain amount of money that's stated. So the important thing is that you spend the time and read the note. This is all of the deed. This is what you're signing or your client is signing. Very, very important. Uh, Okay, I'm going to go down now through this. On this page here it says the promissory note is almost always a... Notice it said almost, always accompanied by a security instrument. A security instrument gives the creditor the right to have security, have the security property sold to satisfy the debt if the debtor fails to pay the debt according to the terms of the agreement. Okay? So what that means is that we have a note and then we have a deed of trust. Okay? Which is a three-party instrument. 
that we use in California, or we have a note and we have a mortgage. Okay, the mortgage is a security instrument. Okay, very important that we understand that there's a difference between the two of them. Also to understand that you need to read both documents because you may find out that some of the or most of the terms are going to be listed in the note, but you're going to find out the security issues are going to be listed, for example, like in the deed of trust. So as an example, the note may very well talk about prepayment penalties, interest rates, the amount of money that you borrow, so on and so forth. The deed of trust, on the other hand, will talk about things like you need to have fire insurance. If you don't have fire insurance on the property, uh, what's going to end up happening is the lender is going to be contacted um, uh, by the insurance company letting them know that they don't have fire insurance on it anymore. And if you're not going to carry fire insurance, guess what? They'll get it and they can foreclose on that. That would be under the security instrument, under the deed of trust. Uh, if you decide to sell the property without the, without the lender's permission, that would be something that would most likely be covered in the deed of trust. Uh, if you don't keep the property in good condition, although that can be difficult to determine, but if you don't, they can foreclose on that. That would be in the deed of trust. It wouldn't be in the note. It would be in the deed of trust. And the reason why it's in the deed of trust is because of the fact that these are, these are issues that deal with the security of the, of the, of the, of the property that you're pledging. So in other words, they're saying, listen, if you're going to pledge this house, we want to make sure, for example, that you keep it in good condition. Okay, because that's what you're pledging. We want to make sure that you have fire insurance on it in case it burns down. We want to make sure that you don't sell it to somebody else without our permission, that we end up with some deadbeat that owns it now is not making the monthly payments. Okay, those are the things that are in the security instrument. Okay. Now, going from here, it talks about the deed of trust, or sometimes referred to as the trust deed. It says, the deed of trust or trust deed is commonly used security device. It is a three-party device, okay, three-party. The borrower is called the grantor or, um, or the trustor, okay. The lender is called the beneficiary or sometimes called the lender. And there is, no, and there is an independent party called the trustee. So in other words, we, this document purposely has a third person or a third entity that's there besides the person that borrows the money and the person that lends the money, the trustee. The trustee is supposed to be the one that's going to take and sell the property if, if you, the person that borrows the money, does, do not fulfill all of the obligations. Okay. The trustee was originally designed to convey naked title Okay, and this is interesting because this is a definition of what we call naked title or bare naked title. Naked title, legal title with no rights of possession. So when we talk about naked title, it means that that trustee has the ownership of the property but cannot live in the property. That's what we're talking about. Again, that says legal title. They have legal title with no rights of possession. So what happens is, is that when you borrow the money, you are granting bare naked title to the trustee, which means that they hold title to that, but you still have the right of possession of it, to live and enjoy in it. A live in it, enjoy it, swim in the pool, whatever. Okay? So that's what you're really doing. That's what bare naked title really means. Um, going on from there, bare naked title is possession to the trustee through the period of indebtedness. What that basically means is that when you first start having the loan out, your original agreement when you sign that deed of trust, if everything goes correctly, if you sign it for, say, uh, 30 years, the idea is that you're going to pledge the property, 
The trustee has legal title to the property. You have the right to live in the house, okay, for 30 years, and you have a time limit. At the end of 30 years, if you've done everything that you're supposed to have done, you now have paid the loan off, okay? And then the trustee is required to turn around and record something called the deed of reconveyance, which gives you now full legal title to the property, okay? That's essentially what happens. Uh, requirements for a uh, valid deed of trust, you have to have the following things. Number one, you have to have a statement that pledges the property as collateral for the debt. You have to have a granting clause. Okay. Number two, you have to have a complete and unambiguous property description, which means a legal description. You know, this property is legally described as what? Not a common address, not 123 Main Street, but a legal address or a legal description to the property has to be there. Number three, you have to have the amount of the debt. Notice that there's no interest rate in here called out or prepayment penalties or anything else. You're just talking about the amount of the debt. The next thing that you have to have besides that, you have to have a few other things. You have to know when the debt is mature, when it becomes mature, or the maturity date of the debt. That means when is... All that is is a fancy term for meaning when is the loan supposed to be paid off. That's the maturity date. Then a defiance clause, defiance clause, or however, stating that the trustee will be canceled when the debt is paid. Essentially, what that means is that the concept is is that you're stating ahead of time that hey, you know, once I turn around and pay this note off, then what's going to end up happening is the deed of trust will be canceled. And again, we don't tear it up and throw it away. That's not how we cancel it. We record something called a deed of reconveyance, which essentially says in the chain of title that deed of trust we recorded, you know, maybe 30 years ago is no longer good because it's completely paid off. Okay? And then you have to also have what we call a power of sale clause, which means that that, that the trustee has the ability or the power to sell the property in the event if directed by the beneficiary, the lender, to sell it. Goes on from there, it says, when a debt is paid in full, the beneficiary directs the trustee to reconvey the title to the trustor, the maker. The trustee releases the lien of the trustee by signing and recording a deed of reconveyance. So I'm not making this stuff up. A deed of reconveyance returns full title to the maker, the trustor of the debt, which means that they now completely own the property. Okay, it's completely paid off, or that loan is paid off, if you will. Now, you know, that, that particular note is paid off. Now, that could have been, by the way, that could have been a first note, or a first note in deed of trust. It could have been a second, it could have been a third, it could have been a fourth. But whatever it is, it means that that one's been paid off. Okay. Now, I'm going to show you this in a minute. They show you a deed of trust, and I'm going to also mention a couple things about this particular deed of trust that I don't think it includes, and I want to make you aware of that. And um, It says most lenders use a standard FNMAFHLAM, which is basically a Fannie Mae Freddie Mac form is what they're talking about. They use a Freddie Mac Fannie Mac form, trust deed form, so that the loan will easily be saleable to these agencies. Okay? And I think this is important. Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac had to carefully inspect the provisions of each individual deed of trust they purchased. If they had to, it, it would be in, in practical, time-consuming process. 
Meaning that, you know, like anything else, if B of A had their loan type of grant, uh, Bank of America, uh, I'm sorry, B of A had their kind, Wells Fargo had their kind, it would take forever to try to reconcile it. And so, you know, they basically say, you know what, if you want to sell that loan to us, then you're going to use our form because we know what that form contains. We know what the clauses are in that form. That form is used by all lenders. We don't have to hire a bunch of attorneys to kind of figure out what's going on. We're all using the same form. Again, back to what we call standards. You know, you're seeing this industry is consistently and constantly moving forward on standards, standards, standards. You know, we have a certain standardized loan application, a certain size kind of appraisal report form that we fill out that's a standard. Here we have a certain type of deed of trust. So, again, standards. Uh, when all lenders use standard forms, secondary investors can, can be assured of receiving a deed with an acceptable provisions. Okay. Uh, foreclosure, a deed of trust allows the beneficiary to foreclose the lien without burden of bringing a legal action. This is called a non-judicial foreclosure. That is a foreclosure without having to go to court. That's the whole idea of, and, and as the book says and, and is becoming more and more true, it's more expeditious and usually in the long run or on the average for, if necessary, if you have to foreclose on the property to do it using a statutory legal procedure, which essentially means that we don't go to court. Essentially what we do is that we follow a set of laws, a very specific set of guidelines that tell us what the steps are we need to follow as the trustee in order to foreclose on this property. And... Uh, that makes it a lot easier to do, a lot easier to understand, and therefore we don't have to get a lot of other people involved. We don't have to go to court. We don't have to hire, you know, get the sheriff's department to sell the property. We don't have to hire an attorney. It's very easy to go through this particular process. That's what this uh, uh, foreclosure under a deed of trust is. Okay. Um, they do show you an example here of a deed of trust. And when I looked at this, Prior to coming to class, I actually attempted fairly quickly to go out on the Internet to find a copy of this form because one of the things that this form, to me, appears to be missing is those details that you would normally see in a deed of trust. In other words, this looks like it's page one of the deed of trust. The other thing that I wanted to mention to you, too, is that normally in California, or not in California, but in a lot, well, in California, but in uh, a lot of transactions, we use a document called a short-form deed of trust, which in many cases may be a fairly simple, straightforward document, but it references a document that's recorded at the county recorder's office called a long-form deed of trust that has all of those clauses in it. And what's missing from this document, is, for, in my particular opinion, is I don't see such things as, uh, you know, that you have to have fire insurance on the property. I don't see where you have to keep the house in good repair. I don't see those kinds of things, So, which leads me to believe that there's more to this particular document than you see right here. In other words, there's more to it. So anyway, um, but I'll just go over briefly what's in this. Okay, and hopefully, uh, again, you can follow along in the book. This is a deed of trust security. It's made on whatever the date is. This is mentioning who the trustor is. Remember, the trustor is the person borrowing the money, and they call them the trustor, and then in parentheses, they call them the borrower. 
So they're making clearly that this happens to be, say, for example, Patrick J. Hogarty. The, the uh, trustee is, and this is naming who the trustee is, which in most cases could be somebody like uh, financial title, first American title, depending upon who's created the document. Okay. Uh, the beneficiary is, and they're telling you who the beneficiary is, which would be Wells Fargo Bank, Bank of America, whoever happens to be the lender. Under the laws of, okay, where, where the laws of, like California, and whose address is, and they mention what the address is, okay, the borrower owes the lender the principal sum of, and this is where you're specifying what it is that you owe out, you're writing it out all in hand like you used to do in checks, and then the dollar amount is listed right here. And then it says, uh, this debt is evidenced by the borrower's note dated, so they're referencing that note that was created, uh, dated as a security instrument which provides the monthly payments with full debt, uh, which is listed here. Okay. Then down below it says, uh, it tells you what the property is for the purposes the borrower irrevocably grants and conveys to the trustee in trust with the power of sale the following described property. That's where you're granting to the trustee that property that can be sold in the event of uh, non-payment. That's the security property. Okay? And described and located in California County, and then this is where that legal description goes, down here. Uh, down below that it says, which has an address of, and this happens to be the common address now, you know, like 123 Main Street, Sacramento, California. And then finally, down here is the last little bit. It says, together with improvements now or hereafter erected on the property, meaning anything that happens to be there now. So when you pledge the property, you can't go and pledge that property and then later on say, oh, by the way, I built a, a barn out there out of my own pocket. You know, you can have the property but not the barn. No, it means that whatever's on that property is pledged, Okay. And all easements, rights, pertinent rents, royalties, mineral rights, gas, all these things, uh, future now, hereafter, a part of the property that's all being granted to the, uh, to the trustee. All replacement and additional shall also be owned by the, uh, covered by the security instrument, okay? Uh, then finally down here it says borrow covenants that borrow is lawfully, uh, I, I'm, see, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't read that without my glasses. Lawfully uh, of the state of, uh, I have to get my glasses on in order to actually read that. It's a little bit hard. Uh, the borrower covenants that the borrower is fully seized of the estate hereby conveyed and has the right to grant and convey the property and that property is unencumbered except for the incumbents recorded. So it means that you are the owner of the property and that you're pledging that it doesn't have any other loans against it or any other things wrong with the property except for what you've disclosed to them. Okay. Uh, borrow warrants and will defend generally the title of the property against claims and demands subject to the encumbrance of record. Okay, meaning that the, the borrower is going to do that. And then finally, this security instrument combines uniform covenants for national use and non-uniform uh, use and non-uniform use covenants with limited variations by jurisdiction or 
constituent to the uniform security instrument conveying real property. And that's the last part of that. But again, I think in this particular case, there are some things that might be missing from this. And I can't find the whole document, but I do want to point out a couple things down here. I'm going to blow this last part up down here. Notice that this is, this deed of trust is for use in California. It's for single family. It's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and it's a uniform instrument. Also notice over here on the right-hand side that the form number that they have here is form number 3005 and that the date of the form is December of 1983. That's why I think the form is maybe a little bit old. When I went to the Fannie Mae website to see if I could find this, I, I was not, you know, within, you know, you know, usually you should be able to find this stuff because you can find other documents fairly quickly, like the appraisal forms and the loan applications. This one I searched forever and couldn't find it, so I'm wondering whether this thing either has been updated or superseded or somewhere along the line has changed. That's the only thing that I'm questioning. So I'm going to zoom back out of that. Okay. The next thing that we want to talk about is the trustee's sale. What happens with the trustee's sale? And this is at the point where, again, uh, we're talking about now that now the person that's borrowed the money has turned around and borrowed it. What they've done is they've maybe been making payments on it. Maybe they could maybe making payments on it for a few months, a few years, maybe many, many years. But what's happened is for some reason they have stopped making payments. That is probably, I would say, the most common, one of the most common reasons why you go to a foreclosure sale is because the person has not been making the monthly payments. Now, in most cases, what usually happens is that if you've been making the payments, the lender typically in the beginning would make an assumption that maybe you mailed the check and they didn't receive it. So they may very well call you on the phone and say, you know, hi, you know, hi, Pat, uh, you know, we normally get a check from you, or are you aware that we haven't received your check or your payment for your uh, monthly, uh, your monthly loan payment for your home and give you an address? And uh, usually, you know, maybe, maybe all that may end up being is to say, you know what, I did make the payment. My goodness, did somebody steal the mail? Did something happen? I'm sorry. Is there some way I can go down to the local bank and make the payment? You know, and if that's the case, then normally you make the payment and you're done. But if you're in a situation where all of a sudden you're not able to make the payments and you stopped, okay, or you, in some cases, people will start by maybe making partial payments. You know, in other words, they're not making the full payment. They're trying to say to the lender, listen, my husband got sick, my, my mother got sick, something happened, I lost my job, can I give you some money now? Usually that you're trying to negotiate with the lender and kind of, you know, hopefully you're thinking things may turn around in a fairly short period of time. Everything that I've ever read has always told me that what you want to do if you run into a situation like that is to contact the lender. Don't drag it out. Don't hide under a rock. Don't make the situation worse. Contact them. Try to find out from them what can possibly be worked out. In some cases, there have been... In, in, in previous times where uh, maybe the lender may turn around and be willing to refinance the loan uh, or maybe work out some kind of a payment situation with you because they are really not set up to really take the property back. They're going to lose in the end. They're going to lose money. You're going to lose money. 
and it's not in everybody's interest in the beginning for them to go ahead and foreclose on the property. And usually, at least in today's market, the reason why people are ending up losing properties to foreclosure is because they signed things like adjustable rate mortgages, and they signed it when the interest rate was maybe a couple years ago and was fairly low. They didn't understand the document they were signing, or they really hadn't really thought it through. What ended up happening is, is that all of a sudden now the interest is now going to adjust. It goes up pretty dramatically. Uh, as it goes up, they all of a sudden find out that, hey, the house I paid $300,000 for is not worth $300,000 anymore because the market is shrinking. A lot of people can't afford to buy. So what ends up happening, and some people will buy houses underneath that situation. They'll buy it and say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and get the loan. I know it adjusts in two years. But you know what? If I can't make the payments in two years, I'm going to sell it. Nobody has ever told them that when, <laughs> when the interest rates go up, the number of people that are willing to buy houses goes down. So you could end up where your house is going to sell for less than what you bought it for. So anyway, the bottom line is that what's ended up happening is that you're now at a situation where you know the lender has tried to do something to work it out, or you've tried, and, it's, and what they're going to do is they're going to say, you know what? We're going to have to start the foreclosure procedure. So this part of the book is going to explain in basic step-by-step process how that, pro how that foreclosure process works. So anyway, the first thing that the lender does after they've said, I've tried everything I can, I'm, I want to start foreclosure. Okay, the first thing that they do, it says, first, the beneficiary, the lender prepares a document called a declaration of default requesting that the trustee begin the foreclosure proceeding. So that's the first step that they do. They contact, and that's the document that they use in order to make that happen. Okay, a declaration of default. Second, the trustee then prepares something called the notice of default and an election to sell document, which is sent to the borrower. So now the borrower has got an action sent to them that says, listen, we've now started the foreclosure process to sell the property due to lack of a payment. Now, again, that could be a situation then when all of a sudden the borrower is going to go, oh, oh, I didn't realize that was going on or I didn't understand or whatever, and maybe they're going to come back in again and start payments. Okay, But anyway, that, that's the process we're in right now. The trustee also notifies anyone who has subsequently recorded a request for notice of default and sale. What that means is this, is if I'm going to, if I have an original loan that maybe I got from a lender, like again, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, when I got ready to buy the house, and let's say uh, maybe a year or two or three years later, I decided to turn around and borrow some additional money against the house. I may have gotten an equity line of credit. I may have borrowed the money to put a pool in or to put a new roof on the house or something like that. What the person that lends that money is going to do is also record in there, when they're doing all their recording, record something called a request for notice. What that essentially means is that that request for notice is saying, to letting everybody know to say, listen, if that first loan gets foreclosed on, I want to be notified that that's happening so that I can take an action and, 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 and at least be at the bidding sale to be able to buy the house and get, protect my interest. Okay? So you're requesting. And you're requesting. Otherwise, if you as a second lender take no action whatsoever, none, what's going to end up happening, and that property only sells for the amount of money that's owed on the first loan, you could literally be wiped out. 
Okay, so that's why you want to know for sure. And you may say, well, how come I wouldn't know? Well, the reason is is that maybe you were the owner and carried back a loan, and what you did is you had agreed to do something like maybe taking your loan payments every six months or once a year. And maybe the, you've been getting monthly pay, or maybe you've been getting your quarterly or your semi-annually or your annual payments. And, uh, you know, and maybe you got them the, the last payment last month, and maybe you're not expecting another one for six months. I mean, there are different kinds of loan programs. And uh, all of a sudden, the next time you get a loan, you find out you're not going to get a loan payment because the house was sold at foreclosure. So that's why you want to be notified of what's going on to protect your interest. Okay, the trustee also notifies, okay, we talked about that the trustee is required to provide notice to all lien holders, anybody that has a lien against it, mechanics lien, you know, whatever. Let everybody know what's going on. The reason why you want to do that is because, guess what, if people are losing the house due to foreclosure on the first, they probably have other debts that may be other debts, judgments, things have been recorded against the property. So you want to let those people know that, hey, you know what, the lender, the bank, is going to foreclose on the first, and all those other people need to be notified so they can try to protect their interests. That's what you're doing. So the borrower can prevent the sale of the property by reinstating the loan. A loan is reinstated by paying all past due installments plus late charges, interest, and other costs. And you may say, why did that ever happen? How did that happen? Well, it's not uncommon for people to become injured or become sick Maybe they're out of work for a period of time, uh, and they ha don't have income coming in. Maybe their income, maybe all they're getting is some disability from the state of California. Uh, it could be maybe their spouse lost their job. A lot of times people qualify for buying a house, and what ends up happening is it's taking both incomes to do it. And if one person gets laid off, that has, a, you know, half the income, if not more, is gone. Okay? So the point is, is you could end up in a foreclosure situation because you had a, uh, had a physical injury, and then all of a sudden what happened is you went in the hospital, you had an operation, you got fixed up, and now you're okay and you're back to work again. Or maybe your wife got laid off, lost her job, and now she ma managed to find another job, and now she's working again. You want to be able to reinstate the house. The important point is, is that to reinstate it, you're going to have to pay the back loan payments. You're going to have to pay any late fees. You're going to have to pay any other fees that the lender has incurred as part of the foreclosure, which would be the trustee's fees, the recording of document fees. All that stuff is going to have to be paid by you in order to reinstate the house. And the reason basically why you would want to do that would be for two reasons. Number one would be because of the fact that maybe you do have a lot of equity in the house and you want to protect it. And second of all, you don't want the house to go into foreclosure because if you do, it's going to have a dramatic effect on your credit. So you want to protect that, and, and that's why you'll step up and make those payments. Okay, after that, it says, if the loan is not reinstated within three months of the notice of default, the trustee publishes a notice of sale of the property in the newspaper of general circulation. Um, I cannot for the life of me right off the top of my head remember this newspaper, but it's, I think it's called the Daily Recorder is where you'll see this. And I think possibly the Business Journal in Sacramento does some of this. And you'll see things in these newspapers such as things like mechanics liens, uh, 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 fictitious business names where people will put a name, you know, they're going to get a business license and they'll have like Pat Hogarty, Realtor Incorporated or something, and they'll have a fictitious business name they'll have listed. 
So this is a general. I know that the, the uh, recorder paper is, uh, there's a copy of that that usually you can get at like uh, uh, Borders uh, Bookstore. It'd be one, uh, certain Borders Bookstores. And, and usually in the past, Tower of Books, when they were around, usually used to have this for sale all the time. And, and I think you can also subscribe to it online. But you'll see that notice printed in there. The notice uh, of the sale warns not only the borrower but also other lien holders that the property is being sold to recover monies owed against it. So you're letting everybody in the world know what's going on. The notice must appear weekly and the sale cannot take place until at least 20 days have elapsed from the first date of its publication. That's why you hear the term like 21 days because it's like that one day in there. Additionally, a notice of sale must be sent to the bar and posted on the property. And I've had to do that. Okay, when I worked for a title company, I had to actually, you have to actually take the notice out to the property and you have to staple it to the, like the front door or the garage door where it's obvious that the people would know that the house is being sold. And the reason why is you want to make sure that the owner, you're trying, as the trustee, you're trying everything in your power to make sure that they are totally made aware of the fact that the property is being sold. And the idea is that if you put the notice on the door, what will happen is when they walk in the door, they will see the notice. So you're trying everything, considering the fact that maybe the mail failed or something else happened. That's the reason why they're doing it. Um, goes down from here and it says, at the sale, usually a public auction, any person including the debtor, meaning you, the person that borrowed the money, or the creditor, may bid on the property. So anybody can bid on the property. The trustee can reject any or all inadequate bids and can postpone the sale if there are no acceptable bids. That's why lenders end up back with properties. You know, when we talk about something called uh, REO properties, real estate owned, that means real estate owned by lending institutions. It's because, you know, they tried to sell it. They were the only bidder. And now they're stuck with the property. Now they're in a position. That's why lenders find this to be difficult because if they haven't, if they have not had properties that they've had to do this with before, they now have to take somebody that works for the company and literally make an office, you know, if they've never had this happen before. And then once they hire that person, they have to hire usually a staff of people that are going to maybe go out and hire somebody to manage the property, somebody to cut the lawn, somebody to take care of the pool, somebody, I mean, on and on and on. You know, some, uh, it's a very, very expensive process for the lender. And, uh, and the lender is not set up for that. Um, and so what's going to end up happening is it's going to cost a lot of money to the lender. That's why they want to not have to do this if they can get out of it. Um, anyway, otherwise the sale uh, is going to be going to the highest bidder. The purchaser receives a trustee's deed, which eliminates all liens junior to the trustee being foreclosed. So that means the second is gone unless the second has taken some kind of action. And any interest in the debtor that had in the property, the trustee applies the sale proceeds in the following order, and this is how they're supposed to display how, what they're supposed to do with those proceeds. Number one, they have to pay the trustee's cost. So the first person to get paid in the trustee sale is the trustee, which could be all the recording fees, their fees to act as a trustee, any other any other costs that have been associated with the trustee. They have to be paid first. Uh, second of all, to satisfy the, bene uh, 
to satisfy the beneficiary's debt. So that means the second part, any money that's left over after you've paid the trustee, is now going to go ahead and pay back the lender that started the foreclosure process in the first place. So, for example, if they were owed $100,000, they're going to get their $100,000 if that money is available. The third thing uh, goes to any junior lien holders in the priority in which they're in. So, in other words, if you had a second deed of trust and there was any money left over, it would go to the second deed of trust holder. If there's any money left over after that, it goes to the third. Any money left over, that goes to the fourth. Okay? So that, and the priority, priority means priority of recording at the time. And then finally, to the debtor. So any money after everybody else is paid, any money that is left goes back to the person that actually borrowed the money in the first place. That's where the, the final proceeds go to. All right? So I think that's important for, for you to know how that works. Um, a couple things that we want to point out underneath this type of a, a situation, because there's no court involved in the trust deed foreclosure process, it is impossible to obtain a deficiency judgment in the trustee sale. What that essentially means is this, is that a deficiency judgment means that you owe a lender a certain amount of money, say $100,000. And what's ended up happening when they sold the property the amount of proceeds they got was less than 100 or maybe it was 100 but it, it, there was more costs involved and the difference between what you sold the property for which is here and how much money happens to be owed against it which is here is called the deficiency and because it's a deed of trust sale or a trustee sale it, you cannot get a judgment against the person that borrowed the money for that deficiency. Okay? That's typically called the deficiency judgment. Right? And that's very important to know. And the reason why you can't do that is because you didn't go to court. Court, the judge would have looked at it and made a decision and been able to rule. In this case, you don't have, you're not going through court, so you don't get the deficiency judgment. Okay? Very, very important. Um, if the sale of the property fails to cover the debt, the beneficiary cannot sue the debtor for the remainder. He or she must be satisfied with the proceeds of the trustee sale. However, it is possible to foreclose a deed of trust like a mortgage, whereby all the procedures and rights of relating to the mortgages are applicable. So again, what you want to do is make sure that when you are talking about the foreclosure process, that you make sure that you're just not saying, oh, it's a deed of trust and they can't do that. They can't get a deficiency judgment. You want to make sure you understand what's basically going on. If there's a substantial amount of money involved, substantial amount of money, I would venture to say that the, that the person that's owed the money is going to go after and try to recover that back, especially if they think there's a possibility. And that would probably be an economic decision, you know, like what's my court cost going to be, the cost of the attorney, whatever. But you're going to possibly have that, which means that you could end up where you thought the property was sold and, and, and by selling it, you now are out from underneath that debt only to find out now they're going after you and garnishing your salary at work. So that's why you want to be particularly aware of how that works. They finally talk here about what are some of the advantages of, of the and disadvantages of a deed of trust. Uh, I would basically say that the advantages on the side of the lender, 
The advantages to them that it's quick, it's efficient, uh, it's well-defined. You know, once you start the foreclosure process, you know how many days have to go by before the foreclosure actually is completed. Unlike going to court, if you go to court, you have no idea. You can postpone something. You've got to go back to court. It can take a long period of time. So if you've done everything correctly, it's pretty clear-cut on what has to happen. So it's very efficient, very effective, and it therefore hopefully reduces your cost as a lender. The disadvantage of it is the fact that you can't go after the people for a deficiency judgment. And I think sometimes when you talk about that, you really have to look at the person. If you're going to go back after them for a deficiency judgment, is there any money there to get? So in other words, if you're going to go after somebody in court and they don't really have any, any means, any additional money that they can be paying you back, then you're going to be spending a lot of money and not going to be able to recover it. So you want to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, it says, from the, from the borrower's point of view, the protection against deficiency judgment is probably the main advantage of the trustee. That's the main advantage because you don't care. As a, as a borrower, how, what kind of a security instrument you use. Okay, you don't care whether it's a mortgage or a deed of trust. It's just, you know, that's the one protection that you're afforded. And I think we're getting close to the end. I'll just tell you a little bit about what we're going to talk about the next time uh, to make sure we cover. We are going to talk about mortgages the next time so that you are familiar with what those terms really mean and what the difference between a statutory foreclosure is and a judicial foreclosure is and then who really sells the property. So I think we're going to be covering that and the advantages and disadvantages and also that underneath a mortgage, you do have the right of redemption, which means that you can go back after the property is sold and redeem it back. You can't do that with the deed of trust, so we want to make sure that you're clear about that. We will also talk about you know the p different people's role, the sheriff's role, what happens during the post-sale. Of, of a mortgage, okay? And we are going to talk about the advantages and the disadvantages of the mortgage. Uh, a couple other things that we'll talk about the next time is we're going to talk about contract as far as what we call land track, uh, land contract or a contract for sale. I'll be talking about those things, and I have a link underneath the chapter for this that shows you where CalVet loans use a contract for sale where they buy the house and they continue to own it until you pay it off. So we're going to show you where that actually is located. And then we're going to specifically talk about some of those clauses, things such as acceleration clauses, prepayment clauses, things along that line that deal with the, this kind of a loan. kind of want to remind you that, remember, the exam, first midterm exam is coming up very quickly. Make sure you study that study guide very, very hard. Make sure you show up for the exam on time and that you bring, if not early, and bring a Scantron 882 and a number two pencil. Otherwise, thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here again the next time. Have a nice day.